Hello, everybody. Welcome to Becoming Better, the podcast dedicated to helping you become a better human being. I'm the host of the show, Chris Bailey. This is episode number 42, Time and Money. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Ashley Willens to the show. Ashley studies three topics that are near and dear to the podcast, time, money, and happiness. And she looks at the ways in which all three influence one another. She's an associate professor at Harvard University, and she's also the author of a new book called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. It's a fantastic book. It's a great concise read. It really is one of those books that can pay for itself a hundred times over and how much value it brings to your life. I Hop over to Amazon, hit up your, your favorite local bookseller and pick up a copy. Uh, you'll be happy you did. And so it's a great pleasure that I get to welcome to the show, Ashley Willens. Welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah, good. You're, you're Canadian as well, right? I am, yeah. Born oh. and bred on the west coast of Canada, just outside oh. Vancouver. Yes. Do you think people, when you're in the U.S., can tell you're Canadian or no? Um, when I gratuitously apologize in meetings or wait yeah. too long to turn while driving, yes, they can. <laughs> that, that's actually a weird thing because in Canada, everybody actually does apologize constantly. And you don't really notice it because you're like the fish in water. But then you go to a different place and you realize just how how much you're apologizing. It's a real thing. Yeah, especially in a place like Boston where people cut you off and then you find yourself apologizing. <laughs> yeah, they cut you off when you're talking, they cut you off in the streets, they cut you off just every <laughs> every which way. Exactly. Yeah, it's always the Canadians that end up apologizing. So we we got <laughs> we got half an hour together. So and I've got so much to ask you, especially after reading the book Time Smart. Um so I'm going to jump right in and I'm I'm going to start with a basic Question. So one, one central theme of the book uh, seems to be that we chase money uh, with a greater drive than we chase having more time. And money seems like this, this sexy thing that we all try to accumulate more of, but time doesn't necessarily have that same allure to it. What, why do you think that is? You know, despite uh, you write in the book how uh, money protects against sadness, but doesn't buy joy, uh, whereas time really can provide us with that joy. What is it that makes money such a, a thing we need to chase? Yeah, so there's a lot of reasons. I mean, out of basic necessity, one. Yeah. Uh, two, we're taught that money is our most important resource. We're often taught that success and financial su- success are synonymous with one another. And then three, there's a lot of psychology that explains why we focus more on money and less on time. We're mm-hmm. very good at tracking money. It's objectable or it's an objective resource. It's tangible. We can track it across time. Time is more amorphous. It's harder to track yeah. small losses of free time. And so we often end up giving up our time more readily than we give up our money. And so one of the key central themes in the book that I'm trying to get across is that we all need to be more mindful about how we spend our time and value our time at least to the same extent as we value our money. How do we get to the point where we care about time as much as we care about money? 
So I think this is through, you know, small actions on an everyday basis. In my research, where I first became interested in this question around how we value time and how we value money, I presented people with a simple single item question to help them identify whether they were someone who prioritized time more than money or money more than time. I asked them simply, are you more like Taylor? Are you more like Morgan? Taylor values time more than money, is willing to give up money in order to have more time. Morgan values money more than time, is willing to give up time to have more money. What I found is a roughly even split with a slight preference for people saying they were more like Taylor and less like Morgan. But over and over again, I find that people who say they put time first in their lives, not money, report greater happiness, less stress, and better social relationships. And so the question then does become, what does prioritizing time look like on an everyday basis? The best way to start valuing a resource more is to start seeing ourselves value the resource more over the context of our action or over the course of our uh, days, weeks, months, years, uh, and whole lives. We start to see, what do I actually do? Do I clock out at 6 p.m. instead of taking that additional extra work meeting that I don't really need to be at? Do I really create boundaries between work and home? Do I invest my discretionary time socializing with friends or family or with work colleagues? We so often look to our own behavior to see what we care about. So the best, simplest strategy for putting time first and starting to value time more is being conscious of when we're putting time first and trying to live a time first life in small moments or small decisions around the margins that we can all make on an everyday basis. Mm. Yeah. And in in that spirit, you talk about from the research you've conducted, the the benefits of, of pursuing time more than money and, and prioritizing it more uh, from happiness to that, you know, you just mentioned social connection to satisfaction with our relationships to job satisfaction. Is there one benefit that sticks out to you above the others that we can experience when we prioritize time above money? I think one specific finding that stands out to me from my research, of course, all the benefits you mentioned are true. It's just one study that I conducted that I think really nicely illustrates this point that prioritizing time can give us more moments of joy on an everyday basis. So in one study, I asked college students whether they valued time more than money or money more than time. And I asked them this three months prior to coming into the lab. And then I had all students, regardless of what they valued, interact with another student in the lab. They could spend as long as they would like interacting with this other student. And as soon as they were done, they could go. So there was an opportunity cost of continuing that social interaction with the student they've never met. What I found is that students who prioritize time more than money spent 18% more time interacting with a peer that they had never met which, of course, we know socializing is one of the most important ingredients for our happiness, even small social interactions, like with strangers we've never met or people in our peer group we've never talked to, can have really powerful effects for happiness. And so what the study shows us is that one really powerful benefit of putting time first is we start to think about capitalizing on opportunities for social interactions in our everyday lives. These weak tie interactions, as sociologists call them, can critically determine our happiness and even shape our creativity and our productivity because they give us more access to information that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to access if we were just reaching out to our 
own social network, not one that we didn't have already. So this is just one example among many of when we become overly focused on money, productivity, and efficiency, we might actually miss out on opportunities in our everyday lives to drive greater happiness out of our everyday social interactions, or we might even miss out on potential opportunities that could make us more successful in the future. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear what, and this is introducing one more idea into this constellation of ideas that you already study already with money, time, and happiness, but how you see, maybe elaborating a bit more on on how you see productivity fitting into there, because it seemed it would be kind of... Um, kind of a mixed bag, at least on the surface, with regard to how productivity it would be influenced by whether or not we prioritize time or money more. You know, maybe prioritizing money more, we just focus on doing more, more, more work, but we miss uh, richer opportunities. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think it's really important to think about how you define productivity. If you're looking at sheer yeah. work hours, sure, people who say they value money more than time tend to work more hours. But in my data, they're less wealthy than people who value time. So there's this question of whether putting work first and prioritizing productivity in terms of work hours is really a path to success or to sustainable success. We Mm. know from large-scale survey data that the most talented leaders, the leaders that have the most sustainability in their companies, are the ones that are most likely to recharge, take all of their paid vacation. So I think Mm. there's a bit of a, a false link that we make in our mind between work hours and productivity, the best data suggests that people who take their time off the clock, who really disconnect from work, are those who are able to be more creative, productive when they are at work, even when they're working fewer hours. This is why it's important to think about working smarter, not necessarily longer or harder. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Uh, And one thing that might come to the mind of someone hearing this that you do address in the book uh, several times actually is how time might feel like a privileged uh, thing to chase. You talk about this in the book, but I'm curious what you'd say to that and whether you think uh, valuing time is accessible to to a lot of people. Yeah. So I do sometimes get pushed back where people say, Valuing time sounds nice if I win the lottery first. If this I'm some idea fancy that we need, Harvard professor. Yeah, <laughs> that, this idea that we need to get rich before we focus on the things that truly matter isn't of itself a time trap. So as I outline in the book, 80% mm. of working Americans and working adults all over the world report feeling time poor, like they have too many things to do and not enough time in the day to do them. And this feeling, this psychological feeling of not having control over one's time really strongly negatively predicts happiness. We feel a lot more stressed out when we don't feel in control of our time. And as it turns out, most of us don't. And these feelings of time poverty disproportionately affect people who are financially constrained. So when you are making less money, when you are a single parent, when you're working multiple jobs to make ends meet, your time is more fragmented and you're more likely to feel time poor as opposed to time affluent than individuals that have more discretionary income at their disposal. And so it's actually even more important for uh, people, including college students uh, who have debt and are really busy trying to work while going to school, for example, to focus on time because they're the least likely to do it and the most likely to benefit. So what I observe in my data is that people, regardless of how much money they have in the bank, 
benefit significantly in terms of their happiness and reductions in stress when they put time first in their everyday life. And putting Mm -hmm. time first doesn't necessarily involve a sacrifice of money. We can put time first by treating our upcoming weekend like a vacation and making sure that we really disconnect from our technology or from the temptation to work at any and all hours. There are a lot of strategies under our control. And I talk about one in the book called reframing time, which is where that vacation finding fits into that we can all take to help us feel more in control of our schedule, to be more productive, to be happier, to live more meaningful and richer lives that don't involve giving up any money at all. Yeah. And this is one of the things I love about the book is uh, how you break down how there are ways for us to reclaim our time, basically in two fashions, uh, by doing things that A, save us time, and B, where we're able to actually buy some of our time back. So the first one, which you uh, covered a bit already, saving time, uh, you identify a few time traps in the book, like uh, time confetti. I remember being one of them, this this aversion to idleness that you've uh, hinted at a bit in our conversation so far. Uh, I'm curious what if there's a couple of them that come to mind that you see people falling into the most often and what is somebody can, listening to this right now uh, could do about how, how to escape that, that time trap. Yeah. So you're identifying something that's really key. So many of us feel time poor. In fact, most of us do. And a really critical question to begin to ask ourselves is for me personally, what are the traps that I get myself into that make me feel like my schedule's out of my own control, that I don't have enough time to do all of the things I want to do or have to do. And one of the major time traps that comes up over and over again that I that there's really two that are somewhat related. The first is this technology trap, this idea yeah. that we do co- turn our leisure into time confetti, so small distracted units of free time that are easily squandered and lost from the way that we use our technology. We allow our alerts on our phone, on our Slack, our email, the list goes on and on to pull us out of the present moment and into other things we could or should be doing, which undermines our ability to enjoy our leisure. So we used to have one hour uninterrupted at night after dinner to spend quality time with our friends and family. And now Mm -hmm. we have might have that same hour, but our technology means both we don't get that full hour because our attention is being distracted, but also we don't enjoy it to the same extent because it's reminding us of all of the things we should be doing other than enjoying leisure with our friends or family. So that is a really important trap that we all need to be aware of. How am I using technology? Is it controlling me or am I controlling it? Because technology really does lead to the psychological feeling of being overwhelmed by the demands of work in life, because it's reminding us, even when we're trying to relax, of all of the productivity we might be missing out on by trying to enjoy our leisure. A related trap that I think is really important is this idea of the mere urgency effect. So part of the reason that we're tethered to our phones is we're trying to be productive and committed to show that we care about the work that we're doing, you know, putting our best face forward, if you will. Um, However, the mere urgency effect says actually when we're feeling stressed, we're even more likely to answer emails that don't need to get answered Mm. right away, right away. So we focus on things that are urgent, but not necessarily important to help us feel a sense of control of our schedule, which in and of itself is a trap. Of course, if 
you're checking your email all the time, even if it's not important, this is getting in the way of you being able to spend quality time with your friends and family. So it's actually digging you further into this time poverty trap without you potentially even realizing it. it one, one random idea that I loved from the book that you talked about, and you have a lot of these good, great nuggets sprinkled throughout the book that kind of counterbalances that idea is what you call proactive time. Could you share that with listeners? Yeah, so exactly. One way to fight the mere urgency effect and to take control of your technology is to schedule blocks of time into your calendar where you're going to work on important but not necessarily urgent work. This could be both work, that's productivity focus related to your job, or it could be important goals that you have in your personal life, like training for an upcoming half marathon that you need to make time for but often struggle to be fully present for to actually land in your calendar. One really important strategy related to this pro time intervention is to set aside a planning block. So you want to set aside half an hour with yourself at the beginning of the week to plan out the two subsequent two hour blocks of time where you're going to work on important stuff that's not necessarily urgent. This planning block is critical because we know from the implementation intentions research we're way more likely to follow through if we plan yeah. exactly what we're going to do and when and how prior to getting to the time that we need to do something. So we put this proactive block of time on your calendar for 30 minutes, plan out the blocks of time that you want to do twice for two hours in the upcoming week. And during these hours, you need, you need to completely unplug. So you need to take your time <laughs> off the clock don't check your phone. If you what? feel tempted, throw really? it in a the bottom of a closet, put a lock on the closet for the period of time during your pro, proactive time block. And we've shown in, in our studies that these proactive um, interventions significantly reduce burnout and, and promote happiness. That's awesome. What one one thing that I I like to do is uh, make my wife hold me accountable, and so mm. takeouts a a thing these days. Not that's not less time related, but I could see it working with the phone as well. Uh, so essentially, I say, okay, I I only want to order takeout twice this week, or else I'll gain a bunch of weight. And so it has to go through her. I have to go to her for approval. And if I order it a third time, I have to pay her 50 bucks. And so mm -hmm. I, I could see a similar thing working with, with the phone or, or this proactive time too. Yeah, that's great. Exactly. So what we also made our participants do in that one pro time experiment is their boss was in on it. So their boss would check up <laughs> on and be like, Hey, Ashley, did, did you do that proactive time block yet? How's that going? How's your pro time going? Where's my report? Don't you have pro time blocks? Come on, Ashley. <laughs> so this gave this extra uh, additional social pressure to follow through, which we know is also really important. That's great stuff. Uh, yeah. So that's the that's kind of the first way for for uh, us to reclaim time. Uh, you know, finding uh, these time traps, fi finding ways of reclaiming it in that way, and we can also buy it back. And you have a wonderful way of introducing uh, happiness into kind of the the buyback equation. And it's not th this isn't just for buying back time. Obviously, it extends beyond this, but it's it's a wonderful frame you have for these ideas called happiness dollars. What, what are happiness dollars? So I devised this strategy. So I sometimes get asked, why should I care about happiness? What is the worth of happiness? And as we've already talked about in this conversation, one reason we focus on money and productivity is it's way more tangible and concrete. It's way easier mm. to think about 
what it means to earn $500 than to gain three hours of free time next week. And so happiness dollars is a mechanism by which to make the happiness benefits of time-related choices more concrete for people by putting it in a metric that we all care about and understand, i.e. money. All right, so let me break it down. What did I do? Uh, We know in general from large-scale survey data that the that people gain about a 0.5 on a 10 point happiness scale from making $10,000 more of income in an average year. I also know from a lot of my data how all of these time use choices predict happiness. So I used the, um, the happiness difference in these time related choices and benchmarked them against the income equivalent of these time related choices. So I'll give a couple of examples to show you what I mean. Yeah. So uh, you, the Taylor and Morgan scenario that we were talking about at the beginning of this call, people who say they value time over money, even in the absence of changing anything about their behavior. So going from a Morgan saying you value money to going to becoming a Taylor so that you're putting time first, even without changing any of your actions, produces the happiness equivalent of making $4,400 more of income per year. Outsourcing our most disliked task to others, even accounting for the amount of money you would need to spend to outsource your most disliked tasks, like cooking or having someone clean your house, produces the happiness equivalent of making about $10,000 more of uh, personal income per year. Socializing more than usual also significantly predicts happiness. So it produces the happiness equivalent of making about twenty dollars or $30,000 more wow. per year. And so you can start doing this exercise. And I think personally, what I've heard from people and what I, it really helps our brain wrap around how important these time first choices are in a really concrete and tangible way. And you can see that living a time first life, making all these small time first time prioritization decisions can have a greater effect on your happiness than actually going out and trying to get a higher stress job <laughs> that pays more money. Um, so I think it it helps us kind of convince ourselves that living a time first life matters for yeah. our happiness and the overall quality of our life, maybe even more than chasing that next promotion. Such a good frame for these ideas. I, I love that. Time Smart is the book. Pick it up. Go go over to your your local bookseller, uh, pick this book up. It's I think you'll find it well worth your time. Time Smart: How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life by Ashley Willens. Uh, Ashley, there's one final question I, I like to ask everybody who comes on the podcast. Uh, in the spirit of the name of the show, what is one thing you're working on becoming better at right now? I am trying to disrupt my morning habit. What I've been observing in the work from home environment in my own data is that, you know, we used to have this commute where we went somewhere. Most of us did anyway. Um, We're actually filling that time with work. So I've been Hmm. trying to create a virtual commute for myself where the first thing I do in a day isn't roll out of bed and go directly to work to create this separation between work and home. So something I'm working on is trying to break out of this habit of the first thing I need to do in a day is be productive and instead spend 30 minutes or an hour engaging in other personally important activities, spending time with my fiance, going for a run, reading a book. So that's what I've been working on is habit disruption. 
Interesting. What one one random question? Uh, that was supposed to be the last question, but I can't help but ask. Guilt is is an idea that comes to mind. Uh, we kind of have this guilt of inactivity. You know, whether we're when we're commuting to work, we kind of feel as if we're working because we're moving toward a a goal of some sort with work. But guilt would seem to come to mind for this money mentality because it's something that's measurable. It's something that we want to work towards, whereas more time feels like kind of a, a looser goal, uh, less tangible, like you were saying. Have you done any studies at all on guilt or have any thoughts related to uh, guilt in these ideas? Yeah. So uh, we actually have run a framing intervention study and we can hmm. show that we can encourage people to spend money to save themselves time if we reframe it as a pro-social activity. So if we say, well, this will give you time that you can spend with your friends and family and contributing to causes or to the community that you care about, people are much more ready to engage in some of these time first strategies like buying time. If they're reminded of the pro-social element of time, as opposed to thinking that it's something that benefits only them, which suggests Mm -hmm. that our default inclination is to think exactly this. So we're, our default is to think, Focusing on time is selfish. Focusing on money is maybe more pro-social for my family. And as I've mentioned so much, um, because people who are time-focused socialize more with friends and family, they volunteer more, what my data suggests is focusing on time is pro-social and helping all of us remind ourselves of that fact can change our decision-making on an everyday basis. Mm, Fascinating stuff. Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'll finish up with one quote from the book uh, for folks. Just to one last pitch to pick it up, but I highly recommend Time Smart. Uh, the quote is, um, Chasing money is valuable to a point, but it's an infinite errand. You can always try to get more, and research shows people do that no matter how much money they have already. Then you write later, uh, we need to quote, see time as the more critical currency that it is, the resource that more than any other determines our happiness. So Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Finishing up, becomingbettershow.com is where you can find the corresponding blog article for this episode. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you in a couple Tuesdays.